So we will not be reading from Proverbs 11, 1 through 4. Rather, we will be looking at uh, Hebrews chapter 13. Please turn with me to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, verse 1, Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. So that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines, for it is a good thing that the heart be established with grace, not with meats, which have not profited them that have been occupied therein. We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat, which serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts, whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin, are burned without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, But we seek one to come. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not. For with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. So we come in our uh, sermon to a quotation by the Reverend Richard Sibbs. Uh, you'll remember that he was called among the Puritans the sweet dropper, right? His lips dropped sweetness. Listen to what Richard Sibbs has to say. Again, in that God takes such care for the soul, it shows the wondrous worth of it. Many arguments there be to show that the soul is a precious thing. It was breathed by God at first. 
Christ gave his life to redeem it. But this is an especial one, that God has ordained and established a ministry and watchmen over it. And as God hath set some watchmen over others, so hath he appointed every man to be a watchman to himself. He hath given every man a city to watch over, that is, his own estate and soul. Therefore, let us not depend altogether on the watching of others. God hath planted a conscience in every one of us, and useth as others to our good. So our own care, wisdom, and foresight, these he elevateth and sanctifieth. Well, that's well said. We want, you know, it it has been said, and I believe this is a good maxim. Uh, There are many maxims, you know, that are not so good, right? But this one's a good one. Um, The best kind of government is self-government. You've heard that before. But let's also remember that that maxim does not preclude other kinds of governments either. It doesn't say the only kind of government is self-government. It says the best kind is self-government. There's other kinds of government that are also necessary. And so as we talked about the vows of church membership and vows in general earlier today, in this passage... And in a couple of others, I would like to show you that God has established a sweet relationship between the elders of the church and the flock of Christ in such a way that they would both be edified, that we would all together uh, beautify our profession of faith in Christ and beautify his kingdom by our presence and behavior in it. In this passage especially, I think it's it's a passage that may not quite be understood correctly by many because it's a it's a transitional passage paul is speaking to hebrews here hebrew christians who had begun to wonder if they had made the right decision about christ after all they had you know if abraham came out of the early chaldees if it, or he was born excuse me depending on which dating you use it's either going to be 2166 bc or something like maybe uh 1971 BC or something like that, right? It's going to be some 2,000 years of history as the children of Abraham, 1,500 years of history as the inheritors of the Mosaic establishment. Here are Hebrew Christians now, and the Lord has, and he will make this very plain in just a short time after the book of Hebrews was written by bringing down the temple never to be rebuilt again, that that the state was gone. But imagine if you were alive in those days and what faithfulness would look like. Wow, what am I supposed to do here? Am I supposed to follow Christ and turn my back on Moses? Because that was the false dilemma that was given to many in that day. Well, here we have in this passage, this this uh, bit of speech that's going to help the, the Hebrew Christians make that transition. And they will say, or they will hear along the way, that Moses uh, was good as, as far as he went, but now they have something else that Christ has provided for them. And they needn't turn their back on Moses. There's a continuity with Moses. And it's very interesting that the Lord would have us read from Hebrews chapters 33 and 4, in that same week that we're discussing this, 
But again, God makes those providences. I don't. And so there was something that Moses did that was what? Outside the gate. When they hear this term outside the camp, they're going to think of Moses, aren't they? That there's still some kind of continuity there. And yet notice that it's also Christ that they're following outside the camp as well. So what the writer here is doing, and I don't know who it is, if it's Paul or Barnabas or, or Apollos or others, I don't know, as surely as I can tell you that Paul wrote Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. It's for that same reason I can't tell you who wrote Hebrews, you know. But here we have this wonderful uh, apostle here, whoever he is. He's known to the Hebrews. There's some personal uh, comments there, so they know who he is, right? And so he will tell them now in this final section, uh, after verses 1 through 6, he's going to say to them, Remember them which have or had the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Conversation there is not words, it's the way that they lived. And there is at least implied here in this passage that some of the teachers that these Jewish Christians had that preached the gospel to them and rescued them out of first century Jewish merit religion have already gone into glory. They've already passed away. And so he will tell them, remember them which have the rule or who, who guided you, right? They were your guides at that time. Remember them. And then notice what he will say. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In verse 8, he goes on to declare that Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is something, you know, this is one of those Pauline kind of statements. Remember what Paul will say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Who's Paul? Who's Apollos? Who's Cephas? They're ministers, but it's all of Christ. That's what's being said here. You, you may have lost some of those original ministers that preached to you the word of God. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Beloved, this is why we're a confessional church. This is one of the reasons we're a confessional church. Because of what Christ has taught us in his word. And we have done what, 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 uh, what Paul tells us to do in 1 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. And that is we're to hold up and hold out the truth, right? The pillar and ground of the truth. We're to affix it and to hold it out to all. And what we've done is, or our ancestors have done, is they have written this confession of faith of ours. And these two catechisms that we use. And being a confessional church means what? Ho-hum, ho-hum, pastors come, pastors go. The confession of the church remains the same. This is what's being said here. In many churches today, sadly, it's true, because their confession of faith is a few lines in a constitution or a few lines on a webpage. What you'll find is you change pastors, you change the church. Right? That's not proper. That's not biblical The church is a fixed institution. She's founded upon Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone and his apostles and prophets as those other foundation stones. And we are being built up into a spiritual house, a habitation of God in the spirit. That's what the Bible teaches us. And so there's a continuity, right? I mean, you don't uh, don't build a course of, of, of bricks in a building and then you say, okay, 
one son has, or one father has died, now his son is taking over that masonry job. And so the, the son says, oh, got to tear it all down and start over. Well, that's silly. Why would he do that? This is part of what we were talking about earlier in marriage, right? One of the things marriage has given us is this continuity, generation to generation in the world that it ought to be. And that certainly ought to take place in the church. And so it's over the ages, course by course by course by course are being built up in the spiritual house. And every age brings another course of blocks or living stones in that house. And it's never to be torn down and started over again. And so Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can trace the Protestant, I believe, Presbyterian religion back to the apostles. What we teach today, beloved, is what the apostles taught. What Moses taught. We can show the government and the worship and the doctrines that we proclaim today from the days of Moses. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we don't overturn those landmarks of our fathers. We don't tear down that, that portion of the house, that, that wall, and build up another one instead because we didn't like the way it was built. No. no we proclaim the, that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so, notice, we we go on in verse 9. Be not carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. Don't tear down the building. Don't forget those teachers that brought you into faith. Those apostles that preached the word of God to you, Hebrew Christians. Don't be carried about with diverse and strange doctrines. It is a good thing that the heart be established with grace and not with meats. You're not going to do that through food. And may I say that, that in our day, even the way we eat has become a very religious thing among some folks. Well, we need to be careful of that, don't we? The heart is established with grace and not with meats. It is interesting that there are several religions our day, in our day that are built upon what you eat. Uh, Joanna and I used to frequent a, a restaurant in Southern California before we moved out here. It was in Topanga Canyon. It was run by some folks that, that claimed to follow the alchemy of Saint Germain. And that was an idolatrous thing. They thought that, you know, eating purely means that you're purifying your soul. And so they purified their food in order to purify their soul. Well, the soul is not established with meats. It's established with grace, Paul says, if this is Paul. Old habits die hard. Okay. And those meats have not profited them which have been occupied therein. And now he's going to, he's going to begin turning the transitional knobs here. Right? He's going, to, he's going to begin turning those knobs away from Judaism and toward Christ. Listen to what he says. Those meats, they didn't profit those who, who were so habitual in them. We have an altar and they have no right to eat there which worship at the temple or the tabernacle. Now he's telling them, you need to make a clean break with Judaism. They have no right to eat 
here. It may have been at the inception of Christianity, at the very early days of Christianity, back that we were talking about in, in chapter, I'm sorry, in verse 7, when those apostles first went out. It may have been acceptable to go to synagogue on Saturday and the New Testament assembly on Sunday, or first day of the week. They didn't call it Sunday. That may have been acceptable in those days. But now, with what has gone on, with what has passed, with the persecution that the Jews have raised up against Christ and his church, with all that has gone under the bridge now, notice, we have an altar and they have no right to eat there. We cannot establish our hearts with meat. It must be established with grace. We have an altar that is an altar in heaven. They maintain their altar upon earth and these things cannot meet together. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned without the camp. Notice what he's saying there. He's making use of an Old Testament circumstance and under apostolic inspiration is telling us what God was teaching them even in that day. That their sin offering would take place outside the gate. That is the true sin offering. Jesus Christ. Now that doesn't delegitimize all of those offerings that were taking place in that, in that Old Testament. But it does put a proper understanding that they were designed to point to Jesus Christ who suffered outside the gate. So let us then notice. They're burned without the camp. Wherefore Jesus also that he might sanctify the people with his own blood suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him outside the camp, without the camp, bearing his reproach. What's the camp? Judaism. We have to leave that behind, he's telling them. They have to leave that behind and go to Christ outside the camp. And then he will make it very clear. Don't be attached to Jerusalem. Here we have no continuing city. We seek one to come. Now, beloved, you have to know the book of Hebrews to understand what he's saying there. We have here no continuing city. We seek one to come. When he says, we seek one to come, he hearkens back to the beginning 15 verses of chapter 11, where he will talk about Esau, Abraham, Noah, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, and they sought a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. They were not seeking their reward in Canaan land. They sought a city which hath foundations. What does he say here? We seek a city to come. We have here no continuing city. And he puts it in that same context. What did he say about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah? He said that if they would have been mindful of that city from whence they came, they could have returned. But now they desire a better city that is a heavenly country Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. That's the city we seek too. And that's exactly what he's saying. There's no equivocation there. He's saying, we have the faith of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Sarah. We're seeking a city to come. We have here no continuing city. Judaism is not it, Hebrew Christians. Notice what what else he says. He says, we have here no continuing city. And in the last chapter, toward the end of that chapter, he's talked about the true Zion, the heavenly city, 
Jerusalem, which is above. That's the the language of Galatians chapter 4. But in Hebrews chapter 12, it's that heavenly Jerusalem, the church of the firstborn ones whose names are registered in heaven, and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of just men made perfect. That's where we've come. We have come away from from the earthly city to the heavenly city, and now he makes it final here in chapter 13. We have no continuing city here. You see the context in, in that which he is speaking to those Hebrew Christians. Okay, so notice what he says then. What do we do in that city then? No more city, no more offerings, no more worship. Is that what that means, apostle? Look what he says. By him, therefore, let us offer up the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. But to do good and to communicate, forget not, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. You see what he does here. He gives the two great commandments that that worship still continues in the church. We're going to offer the sacrifice of praise. We're going to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're going to do good and to communicate, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. We're going to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so the two great commandments are proclaimed here. That is, the the proper service of worship in the church pertains to serving God in worshiping Him, the fruit of our lips, confessing to His name is the literal translation of that, making our confession to Him, that is, entering into covenant oath with Him, and then to do good one to another within that worshiping assembly. And so it's still a tangible place to worship with sacrifices that continue. Now that would have been comforting to the Hebrew Christians to hear that. So now we come to verse 17. There's another thing that we have to do in that expression, that that worshiping assembly. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as they that must give account that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. And then another duty, pray for us. So two things there. In verse 17, the word that is translated there as obey is not the standard word for obey. I've told you this before. Maybe some of you remember. It's not the Greek word hupatasso, which means to get yourself in line behind someone and obey them as they are leaders and you are following them. It is the Greek word petho. Petho means to be particularly confident in them. To have a persuasion about you concerning them. Why? Well, because the following of them that you do is not simple obedience, but it is from the heart. It is something that involves the inner man. It's not just get in line, That would be rabbinical teaching, right? The rabbis thought they could keep people in line by disciplining them. The way of the spirit is not such. The way of the Christian church is not such. We have confidence in the spirit of God that he's going to well up in the hearts of God's people a particular persuasion concerning the eldership that rule over them. Not with credulity. You know what credulity is? Credulity is, you know, well, I'll just believe whatever you tell me. 
That's implicit faith, which is destructive of true faith. Not that. And we heard about that earlier in our readings. We understand that. No, but we are to, uh, to be convinced of. And the, yeah, the outward uh, appearance of that is obedience. And there's a, there's a translational thing that I'd like to bring up for you here. Uh, modern works of Greek language, for those of you that want to learn Greek either now or someday, there are modern standards of learning Greek that I think have gone astray. What happens is words do have a semantic range to them. You know, sometimes we'll, we'll hear a word. Uh, let's use the example of this one here, petho. Well, petho in its outward appearance looks like obedience. You're convinced, so you follow them, you obey them. But it is so much more than that and so much deeper than that that it ought not to be translated as obey, but have confidence in obedience or something to that effect because it speaks of that confident heart that precedes the obedience. And that's important. It's an important part of this word that must be brought out. But there are some that would say, no, in this context, it just means obey and we're going to translate obey. Well, then why didn't the apostle use the word hupotasso there? There's got to be a nuance that's brought out. And we have to, in any translation, what I call account for that. We have to account for the word that is used in the original. Many modern uh, systems of learning Greek uh, don't do that anymore. They just say, oh no, the word in this context means that. Well, but there's a nuance there that must be maintained in every case. And so that's the case that I make for verse 17 and the word obey here. It really means to be convinced, to have confidence in. And so notice then that we are to have confidence in them. Uh, they have the rule over us. Uh, you're, we are supposed to submit ourselves to them. For they watch for our souls as they that must give account. That they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. May I ask you this question. This is an inference, a necessary inference that comes out of this passage how will the elders of any given church or elders generally know who they are to give account for it says that they are to give account isn't it a necessary may i say a good and necessary consequence to say they have to know who that is Have you ever talked to someone, and I have, and so maybe you, you, you don't have the breadth of Christian dis, uh, discussion that I do with, with, with others of different expressions, if you will, of their faith. Well, you Be kind and euphemistic in that. Who will say, you know, I'm submitting to the general eldership of the church. Yeah, I submit to elders all the time. Really? Which ones? Well, you know, Monday, if I like this guy over here, it'll be him. And then on Tuesday, if it's this guy over here, it'll be him. But I don't want to join up with any particular church because, you know, they all are going to bring me to a place where I can't obey them anymore and I can't be convinced anymore and so on. Remember Matthew 23, 1. How we close the last service. The Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatsoever they tell you, do. But... Don't do like they do, for they say and do not. You can be 
in some kind of disagreement with those who are ruling over you and still rightly submitting. Because all of your submission, beloved, is always going to be in the Lord, isn't it? There's no authority, ecclesiastical or otherwise, in heaven or on earth that can draw you into any kind of sin. Right? So I've had the conversations on the one side, you know, with I'm submitting to, you know, generally to elders of the church. But the question I want to ask is, how will the elders of the church from this passage know who it is that they will give an account for? It's because there has been some kind of arrangement or agreement between them. I guarantee you that the 12 apostles knew those 3,000 names that they were to give account for when Jerusalem first heard the gospel. And 5,000 later. In fact, if you follow it out in the book of Acts, you'll see that immediately there sprung up an organization of churches and ecclesiastical care within the church such that by the time we get to chapter 6, 6, not 16, 6, the Grecian widows complain because they're not getting the daily ministration. And that complaint comes up to the presbytery in Jerusalem and they handle it. There is so very early and so very swiftly a care of souls going on in Jerusalem. They know who they're answering for. And the people of God, for their, for their part, if we can put it in the language of 1 Thessalonians 5.12 that we've already read, they knew the elders that labored among them to whom they were to submit. And they knew it. That relationship existed very early in the first century church. And why did it exist? Because the care of souls of the shepherd demands it. And with Christ, beloved, remember, read Ezekiel 34 and understand it's always about the sheep. It's not about the leaders. It's about the sheep. One of those men that labored in Jerusalem, in fact, the first preacher in Jerusalem in the days of the New Testament, the apostle Peter, We'll say it this way in chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1. The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being in samples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. You realize that that is written by, by uh, one who some would call the first pope of the church. Obviously he was not that. What he claimed to be was a fellow elder who labors on behalf of the flock. Or to put it in the language of Ezekiel 34, he fed the flock, he didn't feed on the flock. Right? Because for the shepherd, the great shepherd, it's all about the flock. It's all about them. So what does it say there? I'd like to point your attention to two words. Two words. Feed the flock of God, okay, let's round it out to four, which is among you. You have, elders that Peter's talking to, a particular 
charge. A particular charge. You have to know who you give account for. And knowing them or those names, they're on a list like the 3,000 were, like the 5,000 were after them. They're on a list. They're on a roll. Remember in Hebrews chapter 12, we, a moment ago, we, we referenced that. There is, beloved, a register in heaven. If there is a register in heaven, why should there not be a register upon earth? Why shouldn't the invisible and visible church relate to one another in that way? This is why we have genealogies in the Old Testament. They teach us who's in and who's not. Who's one to be followed and who are supposed to follow. The Levites and the not Levites and so on. This is what this is all about because remember Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today and forever. He doesn't change. It's always been about the sheep and it always will be about the sheep. And there will be definite elders to have responsibility over a definite people. They will give account for them. Now we'll turn over to 1 Thessalonians. The other side of that relationship is also true, as we saw earlier in our scripture reading. And again, the Lord does these things. I don't. I don't, I don't coordinate these passages. The Lord does. Verse 12, And we beseech you, brethren... To know them which labor among you. Notice what Peter said. Which are among you. Now, which labor among you. You see the parody of the language there. Back and forth. The elders are to know those whom they give account for. And the people of God are to know the elders to whom they are to submit. There's no general submission to general church leadership in there, in the visible, in the broad, in the Catholic visible church. In our day, that's a real temptation, isn't it? Because you can hear sermons and teachings from just about anybody in any part of the world. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. Beloved, it is easier, but not as good for your soul, to submit to dead guys and guys that live across the ocean than it is to those who stand right in front of you and must give account for you. Sadly, I I believe we've all seen that at one point or other in our lives or been tempted to that even ourselves. So, what have we seen here then in in Hebrews chapter 13? We've seen that there's a particular set of people and elders that go together. Mutually that labor together for the sake of the gospel. This is what we we saw today. When some folks took vows and said, we're going to plant our flag of profession here. It is these elders that we're going to submit to. And as elders, we said, and by the way, we did this long before the vows today. We've been meeting, you know. We said, we're going to take you into our account and realize that we will give account for you. And notice how that when the Lord gives that kind of relationship where he says, I'm watching over the whole, you have people that watch over you that will give account and you must know them and submit to them in me, in the Lord, that only then can we have that proper and mutual relationship that will press us forward in the advancement of the kingdom of Christ, in holiness, in judgment one to another, in correction when we need it. 
And that's why you, people of God, we only ask you when it's time to vote on something, to vote on one thing. Just one. Will you receive this man as an officer? That's it. Because you, from the heart, must be convinced to follow him. You have to have that persuasion that we talked about in Hebrews 13, 17. And that's why we're going to ask you to vote for that. Now, if you join a church that has existing elders, well, that's your vote. Right? I mean, the, the Mathesons, they didn't, uh, they didn't just show up one day and say, okay, you guys, yeah, for sure. No, they stayed. They got to know us. They met with us. We had meetings. We had fun times together. We had meals. They got to know you guys, everybody. And they said, this is where we're going to plant our confession of faith. This is where we're going to say, yes, these are my elders here in this place. And we praise the Lord that they're here. But what a wonderful example and opportunity to bring out this, this biblical relationship one more time to help us, to remind us, to keep us in this kind of profession. So, what do we see then? We have this statement of obedience to our governors in the church. It differs in verse 17 from what we heard in verse 7. Let's turn back to Hebrews 13 and make that distinction while we're hustling to a close here. Verse 7 says, remember them. Notice it's remember. It's not uh, follow them or obey them. It's remember them. Like, like, like we said earlier, most New Testament scholars think that this reaches back to the beginning of the apostolic age and the apostles and many of their assistants that went out and would have spoken to some of these Hebrew Christians and they would have come to faith in Christ at that teaching, but they have since gone on to be with the Lord. Maybe they've met an early martyr's death, right? Or maybe they've gone on to other fields of endeavor, that too. But they're told to remember them which have the rule over you, or which were your guides, in other words. They first started you out on this path of Christianity. Remember them who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow considering the end of their conversation. That is, as their, uh, as their lifestyle, as the way that they lived, uh, lasted until the end of their lives, you do the same. Consider the end of their conversation that it encourages you also to perseverance. But in verse 17, it's different. It's be convinced of these elders here that you have right before you and follow them, obey them. They have the rule over you. Submit yourselves to them. And notice also, they watch for your souls. <clears throat> And then there's another injunction there given to the people of God. And before I tell you that injunction, I want to say that that applies to elders also, me as a minister, with regard to those who are over me in the Lord, that is my presbytery. In other words, nobody's an island here. I'm not saying <coughs> that, you know, you guys need to do this and I don't, I'm ooh, free from that. That's not what I'm saying. The beauty of Presbyterian church government is that no, but no one guy's in charge of anything, Right? And so here we are then, we come to this, and so what does he say? He says, they watch for your souls that they must give account. It's your job then, people of God, to make sure that they do that with joy and not with grief. 
that you make that job that they have of oversight, not one that, you know, you look down at your phone, it's such and so. Now, I don't do that with any of you. Okay, I love all of you. My heart is open to all of you. Thankfully, I mean, that, you know, if it were me, I'd be doing that. But it's not just me, right? The Spirit of God, the, the grace of God works in us. Okay, but we don't want to make that a grievous duty for those that are over us. Now, if they're sinfully grievous, that's their fault. That's not yours. I don't want to do that for my presbytery. You know, I send out an email, oh, another email from Riddell. You know, we don't want that. We don't want to make it grievous for those over us, but a joyous duty. Because if that, if that duty becomes grievous, that will not be profitable for you as the sheep. That's what's being said there. Now, please understand this properly. This is not, okay, well, I'm never going to call the pastor. He doesn't want to hear from me. No, that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is rebellion. Rebellion is the thing that grieves us most as elders. When we have people dig in, I told you this before I had a man tell me once, you, you can't make me come to church on Sunday. And I told well, you're right and you're wrong. You're right in the sense that I won't drag you to church. But you're wrong in the sense I don't have any ecclesiastical authority to tell you to come to church. Of course you have to come to church. You, signed, you said you would. Right? That's a grief, beloved. When, when folks dig their heels in it, they become rebellious. When we shut down and stop talking to one another. When we stop working together as the people of God. You know, we have those 15 things that we talk about to prospective members. If, if I could summarize those 15 things, I would say that in the first instance, we, we, we want you to know where we're coming from standards-wise. So we talked to you about the confession of faith, the catechisms, our book of church order. We ask you even, if you'd be pleased to do so, to read them. We want you to know that's where we're coming from. That's one point of summary. But the second point of summary there, and I think it's really the most important of all, is that you know we're going to behave ourselves as adults here, and we're going to talk when we have disagreements, and not shut down. Not pick up our cookies and leave. We're going to talk to one another. We're going to behave ourselves as mature Christian people, each running in our own lane in the right way. Leaders wanting to lead according to the Scripture. The people of God wanting to follow according to the Scripture. Our obedience being in the Lord. And if we become at odds with one another, maybe that's just a misunderstanding that we can talk through. Maybe it's a real disagreement and one of us might be educated through that discussion. But if you don't have elders that you're connected to like that, you'll never have those conversations. At least they can never have that kind of ecclesiastical authority that they ought to have. This is why I grieve for my, for my brethren in independent churches that don't have a presbytery over them. And I grieve for the people of God that are in those independent churches. Over the years, beloved, I've received calls from many that are in independent churches and they're saying things like, this is what my eldership has told me. What do you think of that? Well, I don't know. I wasn't there. I, I can't make a decision. But it doesn't sound right to me. Do you have any rights of appeal? No, I have nowhere to go. I'm coming to you for advice. I'm sorry, I can't help you, sir. I, I have no authority in your court. Right? Beloved, you do. You have authority. You have some help. 
in this system of government because we recognize that we can be wrong. And yet, being wrong doesn't mean the relationship comes to an end. It means that we make the best use of that relationship with one another. This is what church membership is about. It's not just about loving one another. It is that. It's not just about serving one another. It is that too. But it is also about these things that we have read about today in the scripture. About lines of authority and submission. Obedience and care. That our submission is in the Lord. And that we have as elders a responsibility to give an account. When we stand before Christ. Beloved your names will be spoken. And elders that take that seriously. Well they're doing their jobs. And elders that don't are not doing their jobs very well. And generally that devolves into a kind of tyranny and feeding upon the sheep rather than feeding the sheep. This is the relationship that the Bible sets out between an eldership and its membership. This is good divinity. This is wonderful, comforting theology when it's used properly. I always say to people, uh, they'll ask me, why are you a Presbyterian? And I always say, Presbyterianism is the perfect and biblical expression of church government that no one ever uses. And it's sad that no one ever uses it because we have this wonderful system that God has ordained, a system of graded courts and appeals and discussion and ways to be brethren to one another. Beloved, let us use that. Let us enter into that kind of thing that we saw today in the Matheson family. Let us enter into that in such a way that we wring all the glory for Christ out of it that we can. Because it is his government. It is the government that he has pressed to his church. And it does work when it's used properly. The wisdom of its author shines through. So, The scriptures are not silent on an identifiable membership in the church. As we said before, we say again, true, there is no explicit command to, quote, establish church membership. However, there are certainly the building blocks of such a command and other explicit commands presuppose the enrollment of those who go outside the camp to Christ in the true Zion in the heavenly Jerusalem that already has a role written in heaven. The purpose of church membership then is to provide oversight for the people of God at all levels. And I mean all levels. Ministers, elders, deacons, members. That every one of us has someone to give an answer to when we get out of line. Or someone to encourage us when we don't. Secondly, to provide an identifiable group of folks called saints with whom we are in covenant together before the Lord to be his people. Becoming then a member in the church is to seek Christ outside the camp to leave your former land of habitation and inheritance and loyalty and religion and devotion to go forth to him. And so we have Romans 12, 1 and 2, which speaks to us about becoming living sacrifices in that church. And it is no wonder then that the rest of Romans 12 speaks in the first few verses, 3 through about 7, 
of the officers of the church and then about eight through the end of the members of the church and the duties we have one to another. It's very clear what Paul is doing there in Romans chapter 12. So we go outside the gate. We are not to be like the world in our thinking. We are to be transformed instead. Second, we are to prove what the will of God is. That is, our thinking and our living must be different. It must be geared toward the will of God. That is, the revealed will of God. Thirdly, there is an entity called a body. How will we know the limits and extent of that body, except that we have identified with one another in this thing that we call church membership? And we are members one of another. And then the chapter goes on to speak of the duties we owe to one another and how can we know who those folks are to whom we owe those duties except we be in covenant with one another. So these are really important things to consider. It is to pledge our gifts and graces for the use of Christ in his kingdom as we ply our callings, as we dispose of our goods. It is to confess that God is our God together and to renounce the devil and the world and even our own flesh and other gods falsely so called and it is to learn to think covenantally by serving and not seeking the service of others by bearing the burdens of others and yet bearing our own burdens right Paul Paul says those same things right next to each other in Galatians 6 and then by learning how to ask the question what does it mean to think covenantally here What would happen in the church if everyone took the liberties I'm about to take? Right? That's what it means to live among a group of people. We we don't want to live among this society called the church as if we lived alone and could do whatever it is that we want when we pleased. That is not to think nor to act covenantally. All right, so let's end where we began. Turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 44. The Lord exerts... First of all, rights over his people. Listen to what he says. Yet now hear, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Right? I have chosen you. I have formed you from the womb. I will help you. Fear not, Jacob, my servant, and thou, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. What is Jeshurun? Anybody remember? It's like a diminutive name. It's like God calling the Israelites my little sweeties. It's a diminutive. It's a tender name. And so what does the Lord say to them? He says, I've chosen you. You're my little sweeties. You're my little sweethearts. You're my, you're my little people that I've, that I've drawn to myself. I've created you. I've formed you. And I've chosen you. Don't be afraid. I will help you. So notice the great condescending speech. Then he speaks of his covenant bond toward them i will help you the unbeliever the one outside the visible church with no profession of christ has no such covenant promise that the lord will be his helper in verse three 
It speaks to the Lord's regeneration in time of his true people and baptism is the sign of that regeneration. I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. Notice, pour, pour. Pour water, pour spirit. Right? What did we see today with the water applied to the forehead of Judah and Aurora? What did we see? We saw a sign of something that we pray will be true really for them. That the sign of the pouring out of the spirit of God upon them will be truly executed in God's good time by his ordinary means according to his promises verse 4 note that they have that they will be located in a place of fertility and growth by this pouring out and by this spiritual watering they shall spring up as among the grass as willows by the water courses notice that this is not uh, language of topography it's language of spiritual blessing right these, these are the folks that are planted by the streams of water in psalm 1 who bring forth their fruit in due season these are spiritual blessings being spoken of here and then in verse 5 note that they have a new word in their mouth these folks that the lord has so moved upon one shall say i am the lord's we heard that today. It never ceases to, to cause my heart to skip when I hear someone say, I am the Lord's. I belong to him. Jesus Christ is my sovereign Lord. His doctrine of salvation, the only true doctrine of salvation, his very word, the very word of God. Oh, beloved, those are not common confessions. At least not common in the truth of them. They may come easily off the lips. But in true meaning they're not common. One shall say I am the Lord's. Another shall call himself by the name of Jacob. That is by the name of God's special elect people. Another shall subscribe with his hand to the Lord. And surname himself. He will give up his own name. To take on the name of Israel. That'll become his surname, his sire name. That's what that is, right? In other words, my father, Israel. I'm going to be counted among the sons of Jacob. Mm. And finally, that in every instance, when the Lord speaks of these covenants and these words that are spoken, it's every time the Lord Jehovah, the covenant-keeping, promise-honoring God. Jehovah, 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 in verses 5 and 6. And so finally then, let us think about what it means to be a part of this kingdom. When we think of the visible church, we think of the house of our Lord Jesus Christ, over which he reigns as son, heir, and king. That is the kingdom that we have joined with. Um, it is not like the kingdom of this world, Right? We can join a kingdom in this world and we can say like some have said about our own country, oh, I wish I lived somewhere else, right? There are others that say, oh, this is the greatest nation on earth. And there are others that say, no, I, I wish I could live somewhere else. Beloved, there's no such thing as that kind of, of language when it comes to the kingdom of Christ. We don't say, well, I'm in the kingdom. I'm here in the visible church, but you know, I wish I was somewhere else. No, these are commitments. These are true things that must rise up from the, 
from the understanding, knowledge, will, affections, and all other powers of the soul. Our consciences must leap toward this king. This is why we make these professions. This is why we have these oversight systems that we will be kept straight in our membership in the kingdom of Christ. Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank Thee for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank Thee for His kingdom. We thank Thee that we might have this relationship that we've seen described in Scripture today between elders and people. And Lord, we pray that Thou wouldst bring the best things out of that to bear. Deliver us, Lord, from abuses, either as elders or as members of the church. Deliver us from ecclesiastical tyranny and deliver us from ecclesiastical apathy. And Lord, help us to honor the vows that we have taken to serve Jesus Christ. Father, we confess that, as we have heard already, that our elders will give account for how they've watched over us, and we will give account as those who have been watched over. So Lord, as we will all give account unto Thee, help us to live these days in such a way that we will be able to give a good answer in that day, although not in perfection, certainly with the help of thy Spirit, we may answer well in that day. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.